This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Pop craze youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and standing with me today are my dear friends Sarah B. Hello. And Neil Cool Carnet. Hello there. Colleagues, the pop things, the interesting things, what of them? <laughs> Tell me now. Well, the pop and interesting things are us somewhat reduced these days as I've uh, kind of joined the secret club of people who've fallen through the floorboards of society Um, but I do have a new podcast ooh Ooh. shill baby shill yes (laughs) (laughs) thank you for this opportunity Um, what's it called it's called Teledrome which is a name I was astonished no one else had had Mm. So it's always good when that happens when it just comes to you. It's like let's call it that, and it's like, and you get. Do you remember you used to do Google whacking where you'd you'd Google yes. a thing and there'd be no results. And it's like, <laughs> oh, look at this desert of opportunity. Mm. So the first two episodes are out now. A skinny little ninety minutes each. I mean, barely there, really. You know, um, we have got nerdy and ranty about the two massive fantasy shows of recent months, which were House of the Dragon, a Game of Thrones thing, and The Rings of Power, which is a Lord of the Rings thing. One of these we loved to distraction, one of which we thought was absolute bollocks from hell. So uh, have a listen. But which one, listeners? Find out. out. And and who's the the other bloke? Sorry, it's me and my brilliant friend, John Tatlock. Good old John. Hey up, John. (laughs) Hey up, John. Um, We did uh, a podcast together uh, based on a joke idea that I had and he kind of called my bluff on it. In the before times, uh, we did a a Game of Thrones podcast called The Night's Hate Watch, which is still, I fell off the internet for a bit, I think it's back up now, which is an exhaustive account of how bad the final season of Game Game of Thrones is. Um, you can uh, you can actually track as as the will to live leaks <laughs> from our very souls along the way. Presumably, finally extinguished by Ed Sheeran. I'm guessing. <laughs> oh God, he really haunts the the whole thing. You know, <laughs> this is all modern stuff, isn't it? No, we're doing all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah, just anything. Literally, if you can see it on a screen in your house. Uh, you know, so it's quite a broad dream, it really. The next one we're doing, um, uh, I, I can exclusively reveal, is um, we are going to talk about Hellraiser, um, which Ooh. and horror remakes. Hell, Hellraiser from uh, 1987. You remember that one? You know the really oh god, yeah, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Spoilers. <laughs> um, and they've remade it, and we have opinions about that. So um, yeah, we're doing that. By the way, that's um, that's our own epically late Christmas episode, which is itself an evil. <laughs> Even, well, even later than that. Even <laughs> epically later Halloween episode. So basically, don't feel bad. Time now means nothing. No. And, mm-hmm. and we don't have a schedule. We do it when we are healthy and not too busy. Ooh. And the name of it again, Sarah? The name of the podcast is Teledrome. And um, where can you get it? 
Anywhere you find your podcast. Yes, that's the correct answer. <laughs> Neil, come on in. Step into the cyber. Oh, well, I mean, I think the last time we spoke, Al, it was back in November. In the old times. Our salad days, if you will. But, um, yes, indeed, yes. A very strange end to 2022 and a sort of odd start to 2023. It's been a weird couple of months for me. Ooh. I mean, you know me. I essentially just want to be left alone in my bubble and write reviews of records that no one listens to. Mm. Um, but a couple of things in recent months has sort of problematized that a little bit since i was last on with simon obviously terry hall passed on yeah and the the quietus asked me about eight in the morning that day to write something and by eight thirty in the morning i had and by the afternoon i was getting calls off like radio five and channel four news Ooh. to appear and, and say a Fucking few words hell. yeah i mean i suppose i should feel that as kind of vindication you know this is what a journalist should do put themselves about a bit mm. um and there's no point in me bearing that grudge that it's always enemy fuckers or that incestuous band of mutual mates that passes for London's music media who gets all these gigs Um, you know if when I get given this opportunity I don't take them so I did them both Radio 5 was good Mm. Um, Channel 4 a little bit more revealing I was shunted after 10 seconds in preference for Tim Burgess or something Mm. but but truth be told it all felt a bit distinctly uncomfortable out I was much happier a couple of days later by which time people on Twitter had got around to calling my piece a moronic you know take (laughs) (laughs) And that returned me to my comfort zone. Excellent, yes. Oh, man, you can always rely on cunts, can't you, to (laughs) recenter your world again. Indeed, they keep you grounded. Yes. Um, But, um, (laughs) you know, conversely, I had a lovely moment the other day that reminded me, really, that not all response to stuff has to make me feel like some kind of talking head cunt on a BBC4 documentary. Mm. I was in Stratford-upon-Avon Morrison's, uh, opposite the college there, where my daughter goes, and I went up to the fag kiosk. Right. Um, to buy some stamps and I asked the bloke behind the counter like do you sell stamps mate and he just stares at me in like this dumbfounded silence right so I sort of added you know a book of first class please just to nudge him into action (laughs) but he's still kind of staring at me and then he says are you a sort of big pause on chart music podcast oh yes (laughs) fucking hell I know it was mental and I'm like yes I am are you a pop crazed youngster and he's like Neil Kulkarni, oh my God. He, 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 it was so sweet. He was so flustered. I had to kind of let him serve the, the, the kind of building angry queue of smokers behind me. <laughs> and and then, we, then we sort of stopped for chat. It was, it was really touching to hear how much Chart Music Podcast meant to him. Oh. So that was absolutely lovely. And, you know, hello to Alan from Stratford Morrison's. Oh. Hi, Alan. I will pop in for a longer chat. I mean, the way journalism's going, I might pop in for a job as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know maybe a pot of tea in future but that was that was a really touching thing oh my respect to you alan yeah you gotta watch out though neil it is a double-edged sword being recognized in the mm-hmm. street i used to get it a lot about 20 years ago i moved back to nottingham 20 years ago this month right after being in london and doing a lot of late night telerammel mm-hmm. and so consequently i was recognized all the fucking time yeah, yeah. when i went out in nottingham and to the point where i'd go out with a mate who i hadn't seen for years and i'd go into a pub and just before i went in i'd say to her look before we go in i've got to let you know there's a really good chance that someone neither of us know is going to come up to us and start talking to us <laughs> 
because <laughs> they recognised me off the telly. Yeah, yeah. And she didn't know anything about this. And she just looked at me and went, fucking hell, you, you've become a right arrogant bastard, <laughs> haven't you? And I said, no, 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 seriously. Open the front door of the pub. Mm. I'd only got about three foot in when someone who I didn't know, never met again, mm. just turned around pointed at me and just shouted fucking hell it's you the legend <laughs> and i just looked at my mate and her jaw just hung wide open mm. and said, yeah welcome to my world baby <laughs> but the other edge of that sword always sharp and cutting a couple of months after in the same pub mm-hmm. this girl comes up to me and i can see her coming across to me from the pub immediately knowing what's gonna happen right where she comes up to me and said excuse me i'm really sorry to bother you but uh, have you been on the telly and I said, yeah, I have, yeah. And she looked at me again and said, are you Pete Doherty's stalker on that documentary? <laughs> the fucking death ray glare I fired at her <laughs> made her scuckle all the way back to the pub. And I just thought, thank God you were a woman. If you'd have been a bloke, I would have, oh, the fists would have been brandished. Oh, man. It's 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 tough when you've got a doppelganger on telly because I mean obviously I, I had years of it with Dev Allahan from Coronation Street. So yes. I, I know the feeling. Oh, but anyway, fuck the randoms and the hoi polloi. Let's talk about the special people of this world. The latest batch of pop craze Patreon subscribers. And this time in the five dollar section we have Pete Hibberdeen, Judy Finnegan's Wake, Ewan Wallace, <laughs> Circuit Three. Gary McPherson, Joe Keating, Mike Daly, Adam Harrison, John Rafferty, Ian Hamilton, Mike Atkinson, Wayne Codd, James Purdy, Kit Lynch, DS, Dave Caffrey, Joe O'Donnell, Ian Ron Saunders, Graham McPherson, Mark Corcoran Lettuce, and introducing the ghost face, Scylla! <laughs> Never could get Illa. And in the $3 section, we have Phil Prothero, Kevin Cope, Will Collinson, Russell Parsons, Dan Metcalf, Michelle Lyons, Marie, and Pete. Gibson, thank you, you lovely, lovely people. Thank you. We thank are you. the rain, you are the sun, <laughs> and now we've made a rainbow. <laughs> I think it's beautiful, don't you, Neil? Indeed, indeed. What a beautiful rainbow. I mean, you know, that, that's a whole flotilla of new pop craze youngsters. That's fantastic. A lot of people have left, but a, mm. a lot of people have come on, man. It's a nice, steady churn. Indeed. Which is nice. I wish them all, you know, regular bowel movements and a lovely love life this year. And Pete Gibson. Ooh, you jacked it right up, didn't you, mate? Right up to the armpit, in fact. And we're sore, but we're grateful. So thank you, Pete. And as well as keeping chart music alive and getting new episodes in full days before everyone else we know, advert ramble, the Pop Craig's Patreons get to slip into the back room of the record shop and fiddle about with the chart return book for the brand new chart music top 10. Are we ready, babies? Oh, God, yes. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to the Airbnb 52s, Dag Vatch, the Nagasaki Hellblaster, rock expert David Stubbs! Which means one up, three down, two non-movers, three new entries and one re-entry. 
It's a re-entry at number 10 for Jeff Sex. <laughs> First new entry, straight in at number 9, the two Ronnies clash. <laughs> Down one place from number 7 to number 8, here comes Jism. A new entry, straight in at number 7, Sex under Artex. <laughs> Down one place to number 6, Bummerdog. Into the top five, and it's a one-place jump for the bent cunt who aren't fucking real. <laughs> Last week's number three, this week's number four, Eric Smallshore of Eccles. <laughs> the highest new entry smashes into the chart at number three, Noel Edmonds' wank fantasy. <laughs> no change at number two, the provisional OORA, which means... Britain's number one. Oh yes, he's still there as the chart music top ten number one, the Birmingham Pistrol. Oh, oh my, god. my god, what a chart! I suspected that would be the case, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, mm. much as I suspected Bummer Dog would still be there, the dark side of the moon of, of the, the chart music chart. Those new entries, Sex Under Artex, what are they saying to the youth? I don't know, but yeah, that's a bit close to home, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Problem with Artex is it fucking funks for ages after mm-hmm. you put it up. But once it's up, there's no shift in it. That's it. That's that thing for life, then. Yes. Um, yeah. I can see Sex Under Artex... Um, Sort of early 80s concern, sort of popping up on Riverside with some performative dance troupe. Mm, indeed. It's the X's, isn't it? It's, the, it's always yes. X's. That's a, that's a definitively, yeah, 80s thing. It is, yeah. It doesn't matter what year it is, there's something futuristic mm. about, about an X. It just speaks to a, a, a sexy future that you'll never get to. <laughs> the two Ronnies <laughs> clash, well, that's either some heavy-duty discipline dub or Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett doing some thigh-slapping impersonations of Mick Jones and Joe Strummer. Or it could well be two Ronnies, one cup doing a wah or a fetus, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I will see what you mean. Changing their name to adapt to, to the new styles. <laughs> I just see lots of blacking up there. It's deeply problematic. Oh, yes. <laughs> And Noel Edmonds' wank fantasy, well, that's clearly a dance troupe in the style of um, Sarah Brightman and Hot Gossip. Mm. And they're all dressed up as helicopters and rally cars with legs. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is, it'd be easy to say that his wank fantasy would be Mr. Blobby or something. Mm. But clearly Noel Edmonds is one of those people who wanks in front of a mirror. <laughs> but yeah, Birmingham Fish Troll sticks. <laughs> it really does. I, I have got a small update. Oh, the, yes! Ooh, Come on, oh, yes. give it. On the phenomenon that, I mean, all the kids are talking about. The Indeed. Troll. It, it, it's true that, you know, when I first suggested the phenomena of the Birmingham Pistrol, I was at first sort of confounded by Pricey's quite legitimate and forensically scientific interrogation of the narrative. Nah. You know, he was right to observe that my indeterminacy over whether the Birmingham Pistrol's um, sort of locomotive aspect was one of scuttling or waving, and I, I was <laughs> floundering, to be honest with you, at times under his questioning. Oh, man. Yeah, floundering in a pool of, of Birmingham piss. <laughs> Proper journalism ruins everything, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, it's a Snopes thing, isn't Print it? the legend, Simon! But, I mean, therefore, it was, I mean, it's both revelatory and sort of really gratifying to read a frankly terrifying testimony from a young Brummie um, on the internet 
um, who are, so it must be true, <laughs> who are, <laughs> who are one fifteen in the morning on a cold October Saturday outside the aforementioned Subway Club in Brum had a BPT experience. <gasps> oh, yeah. This guy had descended the spiral staircase down the canal bridge outside the Subway Club to have a piss in the canal, as so many previous mm. victims have. And after a few <laughs> seconds, um, this guy, um, he sees underneath his tinkle of piss... And this was what blew my mind. A mask. <gasps> Fuck. Yeah. I mean, terrifying. Seemingly floating in midair. And not some cheap Halloween mask, but a kind of expensive Dio de las Muertos style skull mask. You know, I mean, serious business. Like a luchador. Yeah. yeah. And the guy thinks, you know, clearly, as, as anyone would, oh, fuck, I'm pissing on someone. Mm. He shouts, oh, fuck, sorry, man. And immediately diverts his stream of <laughs> piss away from the man with the mask who's on the receiving end of it. Now, I think what happens next is what's truly terrifying in this testimony. The masked uh, figure moves <gasps> to follow the stream of piss. And the guy starts screaming, even more, you know, what the fuck are you doing? But, mm. you know, as I've heard before, actually, the BPT doesn't answer. He just, no. he just silently <laughs> stands there, gleefully, I mean, presumably, showering himself in this sort of stream of alco piss. And of course, the, the guy is just traumatised. He comes <laughs> away tells his disbelieving mate and swears down that this must never happen again. Obviously, you know, the next week, the guy, like a fool, goes back to Subway City and it happens again. But this time, you know, he's... Fuck! Yeah, he seeks, like like any scientist, in search of the, the, the nion cryptozoological, which is, I mean, I think we can put BPT <laughs> in that category. I mean, who knows what an unknown branch... Of the hominid family tree, BPT <laughs> might be the last living exemplar of. But, I mean, he gets verification by getting another mate, you know, to have a piss as well and do the same. And in subsequent weeks, according to this chap's testimony, several of this guy's colleagues verify this this experience. And, and they start trying to confront the BPT with questions. Mm. And, and, you know, perhaps the most eerie bit of the testimony, in fact, is that the, the Birmingham Pistrol never answers, but he does. And this is just shudderingly awful. He emits this small groan, you know. <laughs> I've never heard that groan, but even the imagined sound of it, you know, makes me twist and shudder in my sheets at night. This is like a, a groan of satisfaction, I'm, I'm assuming. I guess is, so. He, he lives but for the piss. He does live for the piss, but um, finally, anyway. <laughs> Anyway, the guy and his mates, they kind of pile down en masse to confront, you know, this micturant masked menace. <laughs> but he gets, um, apparently the BPT gets spooked and they kind of never see him again. No. But, but once again, and as ever with the Birmingham Pistrol, you know, this leaves more questions than answers. I Indeed. Think. Yeah, I mean, number one, could the Birmingham Pistrol be a woman? That's a possibility. Mm, no. <laughs> possibly not. I mean, possibly not but you know let's be fair i mean number two is the mask indeed a mask Ooh. or is it yes the grotesquely deformed features of some as yet undiscovered adjunct to mammalian primate development birmingham's a you know that kind of place and you know is the birmingham pistrol no more can the birmingham pistrol communicate is the mask perhaps part of some strange initiation ceremony to an actual whole community of piss trolls mm. who have to obscure their faces as they might be recognised as famous members of Birmingham Boys <laughs> Society? This is my oh God, suspicion. like David Hunter. Indeed. <laughs> 
But, you know, these could be among the primary top-ranking members of Birmingham's powerful line-dancing community, and I think the public have a right to know. Oh, definitely. These are the questions that actually handily form the titles of each episode of my forthcoming History Channel series, Cracking the BPT Code. It's been (laughs) greenlit by National Geographic. Should be on your screens come autumn. Fantastic. Um, ITV spent all this money on a fucking thing about Noel Gordon. <laughs> Jesus. Have you considered um, the theory that it could be a curse? Oh. The Birmingham Pistol might not want to be the Birmingham Pistol, but he has to serve the Birmingham Piss gods. Oh, my God. Yeah. And perhaps if you get too close, you know, the mask slips, in a sense, and you find yourself in the mask, and then you have to take on that role. <laughs> It's like Ring, you know, uh, you mm. piss on the Birmingham Piss Troll and seven days later you become the Birmingham Piss Troll. The series is coming out. I mean, my people are currently in talks with Greg Wallace's people, so let's just see what happens. <laughs> but yeah, terrifying. Verification, though, I feel. Vindication. Yeah, fuck you, Simon. <laughs> I'm worried now that there's going to be like hordes of people going down there, like, you know, cock in hand, ready to lure it out. <laughs> that, which, mean, Sarah, know. there was a guy on Twitter, I think, who in response to that episode, yeah, he did go check it out. Yeah. I think the BBT's long gone. But, um, yeah. you know, let's see. Well, can't it's we gonna have be, a It's going to be all over TikTok, on, Birmingham. <laughs> Piss talk. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen to the, the you know, the, the, the canal is going to be a delicate ecosystem. If there's more people pissing in there than ever Sarah, before. Sarah, it's a canal in Birmingham. It's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. It can only help. <laughs> so if you want in on the never-ending thrill ride that is being a pulp craze Patreon, you know what to do. You take them sexy fingers of yours, you hide them over to the keyboard, you mash, mash, mash patreon.com slash chart music, and you step up to that pay window, daddy, and lay your money down right now, please. <laughs> this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to April the 17th, 1986. Reason for this me dears is twofold uh, firstly a pop crazed youngster stopped me in a supermarket a while back and asked me to sort out a mid 80s one so right. you know it's been a while and mm-hmm. fair enough secondly you know I think it's fair to say that we've had some absolute pop trifle of late with the episodes that we've covered and I think it's now time for a bit of bran don't you <laughs> let me stir a bit of cat shit back into the mix mm, because you know We've done 1986 only twice before, and oh, mm. God. We've witnessed the bright stars of new pop burning out, the dinosaurs of pop roaring back in the wake of Live Aid, and very little new stuff in the charts to get excited about. Yeah. Ooh. Well, I mean, you know, this is obviously an age thing for us, Al, I think. I mean, by 1986, I was a little wanker, basically, um, about pop. Mm. So it kind of confirms all those old, horrible opinions. But, you know, it is also a reminder that you know there's a bit more nuance to it but you're right the dinosaurs are well they still walk don't they yes and nothing kind of completely bracingly new has come along in terms of like a scene it's more like individual figures uh, are kind of still giving us a bit of excitement but Mm. it's a thin episode i think this reflecting a bit of a thin time sarah of course you're a bit younger than us 
So this is kind of more your top of the pops than mine. Yeah. You know, like when you've got um, some manky toys and you just want to hand them on to your uh, little sister or something. They say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yours now. I've got a better one. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is obviously before I've learned cynicism and disdain. for. <laughs> so <laughs> everything's great for me at this point. The pre-Beatles 60s, 1975, 76. The tail end of the 90s. Most of this on Wiped Out of a Century. Why do fallow periods of chart music happen, me dears? Because, you know, after all, there's new bands and artists popping up all the time. So surely there shouldn't ever be a downturn in pop. There always should be something pop and interesting and new happening. There's ebb and flow always, though, like in nature and in music. and in. So why would Top of the Pops be any different? You know, I mean, also, it's like the mids. Whenever you get... Oh, the kids say mid now, don't they, to mean meh. Right. It's, it's one of the mids. I know Taylor said before that he considers 1986 a, a late 80s, like the first of the late. Mm. I think if you run at the sort of hectic pace that this decade has, you are going to experience a greater degree of wear and or tear by the 60s. Mark. Mm. I mean, I don't know. And maybe it's a British thing. Maybe British pop kind of it exhausts itself more often than, than uh, uh, I don't know, pulling this idea off, out of my ass. But there is a certain flaggingness about it. Uh, so what you're saying is that the 80s has spunked its load all over its jumper and there's no tissues under. <laughs> That's precisely <laughs> the mental image that I now have. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can roughly kind of coincide those periods where it feels like there's a bit of a dip with fundamentally a, a period when the biz feels most in control. Yes. So, you know, mid-70s, mid-80s, the, it's the biz exerting their muscle mm. and, and, you know, artists yeah, yeah. kind of feeling you know, needy. Um, they've got the begging bowl out. They want to get signed, obviously. I mean, this is a thing that happens all the time, but there doesn't seem to be anything happening palpably in the background or in the underground, if you like, mm. um, that might feed into an interesting pot chart. So, you know, when you look at the chart, it is mainly in 86. It is it is sort of industry sanctioned, if you like. Yeah. We've had, like you say, Al, that big sort of, era-defining live-aid moment of, you know, we're in control yeah, and, you know, we're always going to be in control. And these old dinosaurs who just refuse to go away, in fact, the resurrection of a lot of those dinosaurs thanks to live-aid. And we're, we're kind of basking in, in 1986 in that period where the business just got complete and utter control over things. Yeah. I mean, the only new band or artist to get to number one in the LP charts in 1986, Five Star with Silk and Steel for one week. For one week. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can point towards the bitter aftertaste of Live Aid and combine that with a transition of CD output from classical music to more quote, modern stuff. Mm. Meaning that there's a load of yuppie twats out there who want their copies of Brothers in Arms and Diamond Life to sound as crisp as possible and hoovering up CD copies of LPs have already got. But I feel you also have to blame the pop craze youngsters. Not the pop oh, yeah, craze youngsters yeah. listening, but the, the pop craze youngsters in general because things have got so fucking conservative with a small C in 1986. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just down to old people buying old dinosaur vans. Young people are buying the shit as well. Yes. Young people are seeing, you know, Dire Straits as the zenith, mm. as this is as good as music gets. Yeah. 
um, in 86. So, yeah, you're entirely right. It's not just a load of old farts who suddenly start buying pop records. It is the pop audience just happen to be buying shite. Yeah. I guess it's significant that, you know, there's this new way to listen to music at this time called the compact disc. Um, Mm. And it is as beautiful as an oil spill in the sun and as futuristic Mm. as a robot that sings whatever song you like as long as it's Lady in Red by Chris de Berg. (laughs) It's it's weird to be looking back on this now, isn't it? But it it was, um, you know, it did provide... A much-needed supplementary income for struggling music journalists who, you yes. know, ended up selling them by the plantain box load to one guy from Guildford called Bill. <laughs> and it will, it was never cool, was it? I suppose it was cool to the very few prosperous wankers of 1986 mm. who were, you know, high on deregulation and what have you. But it started out as something, because it was so expensive, it started out as something for only for middle-aged parents. And a couple of mm. generations later ended up as something only for middle-aged parents. You know, yes. Mm, mm. thing about CDs, yes, you would hear about them all the time, but, you know, me owning a CD player in 1986 is, is like me owning a pair of hover boots in 1986. <laughs> Just wasn't going to fucking happen. Yeah, yeah. If you had a CD player in your house, it would be on the unit in the living room because it had belonged to dad Mm. dad had the control again Mm. And when dads have control of pop, things go bad. Yeah. <laughs> Too right. <laughs> and crucially, you know, you walk in a record shop, the CD section, I mean, yeah. not only is it limited in, in 1986, but the prices, you just look at the prices and you just mm. think, fuck that. The players are prohibitively expensive as well. Yeah. The price of Walkmans has just kind of come down in 86. Oh, yes. Point where a lot of us can afford them. So, yeah, it's tapes and records all the way. Yeah. If you're any, and it's sort of below the age of 40, basically. To my mind, the big story of the year in pop was Zig Zig Sputnik and the general reaction <laughs> and rejection of them because mm-hmm. you know not only did the enemy take against them with their four million pound for this crap cover but even smash hits who up until then were the champions of the pop and interesting thought they were going around thinking there was some yeah. so you've got an environment where anything even slightly flamboyant and different needs to be taken down a peg or two because it's not really proper music yeah completely I blame Noel Ed- and sneering at Prince in the previous year's Brit Awards for all this. But, I mean, you know, for an awful lot of us, Zig Zig Sputnik, who we heard about before we heard... You know, yeah. the, the initial flair of excitement about them was reminiscent for me as a pop fan of kind of, oh, I remember them going mental like this about Frankie. Now, Frankie mm. were exciting and thrilling. When you finally heard the records, they were amazing. Now, much as I yeah. dig Love Missile, um, yeah. you know, Zig Zig weren't in the same league, to be honest with you, in terms of that mm. satisfaction. And consequently, an awful lot of people would have just taken one look at that. And the wedge is in then. Pop's going to be silly yeah. and daft. You stick with Peter Gabriel Sledge hammer and proper music made by proper people you know so they really were not proper people in the best way yes yeah 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 we have often said like you you want your pop stars to seem like they've beamed in from elsewhere or come down in a spaceship and they really like who yeah. who is more spaceship really than six six Burnick? i saw them actually once um at the borderline all of these things that are now Ooh. one of the many defunct clubs of london and you know they were great and obviously this is many years after you know but it was fucking great yeah. but that's the thing i mean i think the kids rejection of zig zig Sputnik wasn't the fact that you know oh they were too weird or too underground it was precisely because it felt like a biz game in itself yeah that when i'm not gonna get played by that you know but you were already told that it was an enormous hype yeah that's it not only by the band themselves but you know this is around the time that all the tabloid newspapers had actual 
proper pop columnists every day. Mm. We were being told how the game was played. Yeah, exactly. Light was being shone upon magic. And fuck that. Yeah, we were being shown the workings, basically. Yes. exactly. I mean, let me stress right now, as far as 1986 episodes Top of the Pops go, this ain't that bad. Mm. If it's a shit sandwich, then at the very least, it's an open-faced shit sandwich, isn't it? (laughs) There is little in the way of cat shit. There's some fucking awful mm. stuff, but, mm. you know, a lot of it's not that bad, is it? No, but but in general, the treatment of pop by this episode is, is it's a bit like what we were just talking about. <laughs> sort of pop sort of not joked about but but pop denigrated ultimately mm. in the way this episode is presented and as we'll see as we go through this, this, this points towards a general kind of denigration of top of the pops that lasts for quite a long time mm. brace yourself pop craze youngsters we're going in hard <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This week, America drops loads of bombs on AAA from British air bases in retaliation for Libya being behind the bombing of a disco in West Berlin, which causes Islamic Jihad to kill three British hostages and kidnap the journalist John McCarthy in Beirut and keep him there for over five years. It also forces Brian Adams to pull out of donating the track Only the Strong Survive to the soundtrack of an upcoming film called Top Gun in disgust. The Shop Spill 1986, an attempt by the government to end the ban on Sunday shopping, is defeated in the House of Parliament and would have to wait until 1994 to come into effect. The government has been coated down by its own MPs for not making the wedding of Nons Andrew and Fergie a public holiday, describing the move as killjoy and spoil sport. (laughs) In other royal news, it's been announced that Prince Charles is letting a very special competitor in next Sunday's London Marathon nip into Buckingham Palace to have a shower and a nice cup of tea. It's Sir James Vincent Savile, OBE, KGSC. 
But then, Lucky Jim deserves it, writes the Sunday people. It was he, after all, who persuaded the royals to allow the marathon to run along the Mall. Course organiser John Disley said, This man Savile has the key to so many doors. I just don't know how he does it. Ross Davidson, hunky male nurse Andy O'Brien in EastEnders, is to be axed from the soap following revelations that he and his on-screen wife Shirley Chilton have been having it off in real life and she's about to walk out on her real-life husband. Rumours of a split hang over the Rolling Stones after Mick Jagger sends telegrams to the other members informing them that he will not be able to tour this year as he'll be working on his second shit solo album. (laughs) But it's definitely Splitsville for Boy George and Alice Temple, the 18-year-old former British BMX champion who were expected to be getting married a month ago, according to the tabloids. But the big news is that Mike Reed will be broadcasting his final Radio 1 breakfast show tomorrow, with Adrian John filling in for a fortnight starting on Monday before Mike Smith takes over for two years. But don't panic, Blue Tulip. He's set to score <laughs> a massive hit in the West End with his musical about John Betjeman. According to John Blake in the Daily Mirror, Andrew Lloyd Webber is thinking about backing it and the likes of Midjor and Steve Harley are fighting to Bagsy a role. I'm really excited, says Mike. Lady Betjeman told me that she thought my music breathed new life into his poems. Sadly, the musical ends up only being performed at assorted charity events, but a CD called Sound of Poetry is released, featuring Harley, Cliff Richard, John Anderson, Gene Pitner, Donovan, David Essex, Captain Sensible, David Grant, Alvin Stardust, and Mike Reed is released. Christ almighty. <laughs> he had so much clout, Mike Reed, simply by being the fucking Radio 1 breakfast DJ. Mm. I've read articles about Top of the Pops where um, there's been guitar playing coming from a dressing room and someone's gone in, mm. and it's virtually half the acts that are appearing in that night's Top of the Pops sitting around listening to Mike Reed playing the guitar and singing at them. Fucking <laughs> I know. <laughs> On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Suze. On the cover of Smash Hits, The Bangles. On the cover of Record Mirror, The Blow Monkeys. On the cover of Number One, Simon Le Bon on his yacht, which is just pulled into Uruguay and at this moment is still upright. (laughs) The number one LP in the country is Hits 4 by various artists. Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits is at number two because of fucking course it is. Over in America, the number one single is Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. And the number one LP is Whitney Houston by Whitney Houston. So, me dears, what were we doing in April of 1986? Oh, God, I wasn't doing a lot. I mean, I was, I now a teenager, um, still at school horrible little sod really i know i always say that about myself but I, you know i do want to retroactively reach an arm back and just slap me because um, i was yeah precocious little sod i mean I a was slap getting a... and then a hug neil surely <laughs> perhaps so did you have specs by then or not i did yeah, oh, God, yeah. yeah. 
I, I'd been wearing back since 1979. Oh. <laughs> so I was well into it by then. Obviously um, because he liked Morrissey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> fucking hell. But yeah, I mean, you know, my sister remembers being, being an annoying critic at the age of five. So Gordon <laughs> oh, was what I was like then. You know, I mean, I started discovering my body thanks to things like Falcon Crest. Ooh. So I was quite literally, in all senses, a little wanker <laughs> um, in 1986. That's what I remember, to be honest. <laughs> I was just about to turn eight the very day after this episode, in fact. Early birthday treat for you then, Sarah. Mm. Early birthday treat for me, yeah, on the massive... Well, I, th- there's different types of massive tellies. We had the, you know... That, that type of massive telly. Right. Um, but I, I was just glad to be still alive at this point because if I think about it, I lived in an extremely dangerous house Ooh. in that classic 80s style. <laughs> it wasn't quite a terrace house. There was sort of two in the front and, uh, and two behind. And incredibly steep stairs, which I learned Ooh. to shin up and down like a little monkey because it was my mm. house. But whenever any of my little friends came around, they would sort of teeter down and I would like, hold their <laughs> hand because it's like, ah, you know, sort of mm. vertiginous steps I, I definitely nearly set myself on fire once by getting too close to the gas fire in the kitchen in my Ooh. very flammable pink robe made of fibers unknown to man <laughs> mm, <laughs> mm. Uh, my mum made me a swing because there was like for some reason there was a set of outdoor stairs to the first floor for no reason at all mm. and she hung a swing off it it was made out of wood a bit of wood and clothesline and i used to just swing on that so that was Fuck. it was lucky that i didn't just fly off into infinity from that Mm. Um, oh man if ever a girl needed a ginger <laughs> tom that spoke like kenny everett <laughs> it was you sarah <laughs> charlie says don't sit on the swing your mum made <laughs> it's not been checked by health and safety but steep staircases i mean when you're a kid you appreciate them mm. but the older you get and the more likely you are to get drunk um, they yes. just become a real problem, don't they? <laughs> Steep staircases are fucking brilliant for getting in a sleeping bag and tobogganing down. <laughs> I don't think I ever did that because it was actually too, because they would sort of turn around at the bottom and, and oh. uh, you know. Plus so. party drama is good with a steep staircase I've seen people fly down a staircase to pin somebody against the wall by their lapels um, and jab their finger in their face it was, it was fantastic and it wouldn't have happened without the steep staircase well I was 17 and uh, still at sixth form finally getting me arse in gear and re-redoing my O-levels mm-hmm. after six months of walking out of the house turning round when it was safe and then going back and bunkering in my bedroom for the day <laughs> I was playing truant mm. at, a college that I didn't have to play truant from. I could have just left it. Yeah, yeah. But there was fuck all else to do. I couldn't see myself getting a job. Mm. I look back now and I just think, what the fuck were you doing, man? <laughs> was I depressed? I don't know. Probably. I think I probably was. Yeah. I became a proper mm. hermit in any case. Mm. I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I had a typewriter and I was doing little bits of writing and stuff mm. like that. I'd done an American football fanzine, but I think I'd finished that by now. Right. I just had the extended childhood that a lot of people of my age did and still do yeah yeah you know being an adult didn't seem like any fun whatsoever so fuck it and i feel really guilty about that now because i was still living at my mum and dad's and i was just poncing off them but i blame thatcher (laughs) (laughs) it's difficult if things suggest themselves to you but you go well never gonna make a living at that yeah if i'd thought more about it you know when i first got into writing and if i hadn't immediately got scooped up by uh, the benevolent melody maker then you know i would have been Mm. in a similar sort of position just going 
what the fuck? Yeah. Writing when you don't live in London, it just feels like a pie in the sky thing, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah. The weird thing is now, of course, 17-year-old kids are kind of being forced, in a sense, to, yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to be? Yeah. And honestly, if I mean, like you, Al, probably, you know, if I'd have been asked at that point, I would have said fucking astronaut or something. I really did not know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think we benefited from that. And you might have benefited from these uh, six months of basically doing fuck all. Mm. Basically, as a way of making sure that you'd stop doing fuck all, maybe. Yes. Because yeah. I hated my sixth form. It was just like being at school again, but without football mm. or any of the other things that make going to school tolerable. <laughs> Music-wise, due to a combination of being skint and the charts being shit, I'm seriously burrowing into the second-hand record shops now, mm-hmm. and I'm still picking up gold from the 60s and 70s, because, you know, why should I spend, what was it, £10 on a CD when I can yeah. pick up Sly and the Family Stone's second album for £2? Yeah. I'm a couple yeah. of months away from hearing Raising Hell by Run DMC and everything changing, but I do remember having my first of many Walkmans round about this time. So, yeah, just a, just a period of ice Isolation. Mm-hmm. Should have been a Smiths fan, really, but I couldn't fucking stand Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't see it, man. I just cannot see that at all. So, Pop Craze Youngsters, you know how we go about at this point of the episode. We retreat to the crap room and rip open a box or two and pull out an example of the music press from this very week. And this time, we've gone for the NME, 19th of April, 1986. Would you care to riffle along with me, my dear? Go on, then. Yes, please. On the cover, test department. In the news, the big story this week is that Jerry Dammers and Dale Tambo, the son of ANC leader Oliver Tambo, are poised to launch artists against apartheid with, quote, one of the most impressive lineups seen since Band Aid. Damas tells the enemy that various big concerts and a benefit record are being planned. And in light of the government's failure to do so, we hope to encourage individuals to impose their own sanctions. For example, stop trading with fascists. Tambo adds that members of Artists Against Apartheid will not play Sun City, but they will go and play in a free, non-racial South Africa and be welcomed not only as artists but also as fellow freedom fighters. Among those fellow freedom fighters who have expressed an interest are Simon Le Bon, The Fall, Hugh Masekela, Billy Ocean, The Pogues, Junior Giscombe and Harry Belafonte. Ooh. Ooh. A big shift this year, I think, politically, in terms of people getting into the um, anti-apartheid movement. Mm. Um, you know, because obviously in 1985, Bob Geldof had sorted out world hunger yeah and you know mm. frankie goes to hollywood had sorted out nuclear war so so mm. yeah this this was definitely the the, the thing of this year knob smelled off isn't completely <laughs> edged out of this week's do-gooding news however he's made an appearance for a slap-up lunch at the hard rock cafe in covent garden to give his blessing to the launch of stars by hair and aid 39 of metal's heaviest mothers have taken time <laughs> off from their normal pursuit of dipping their dorks into the steaming entrails of freshly slaughtered goats in order to make their contribution to the USA for Africa Foundation, reports Matt Snow. 
as paparazzi flashed and French fries flew. St. Bob pronounced benediction upon the project while disclaiming any credit for it. Most of that goes to Mistopheles lookalike Ronnie James Dio, who initiated the enterprise and penned the song. Many of the project's contributors are there, including Ted Nugent, Yingui Molstein, and members of Dio, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, Queensryche, Wasp, and of course, Spinal Tap. Also in attendance is, quote, Radio on Firebrand Simon Bates. Commended <laughs> Rock's continued fundraising efforts on the grounds that the Scrooge regimes of the West would be squealing with renewed embarrassment, having hoped the fad would die down. Oh, you see, they are caring, considerate persons, not just thrash metal fans. <laughs> I've never heard that. Is it any good, Neil? Oh, it's crap. It, no, Is it's it? rubbish. It's rubbish. Don't bother. I mean, even Sophia, who loves all of those names that you just mentioned, uh, yeah, don't go for it. It's no good. The thing is, every one of the people involved in that could legitimately do the tonight, thank God it's them instead of you line. <laughs> oh, they must have been fighting over it. <laughs> in gig news, the Beastie Boys have had to drop out of their support act on the big Audio Dynamite tour because they've all caught colds. Pete Shelley is back on the road after a long post-Buzzcocks absence. Doctor and the Medics kick off their new Messiah's tour to coincide with the release of their new single, a cover of Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky, and there's new national tours from AHA, America's Rudest Rock Act, The Butthole Surfers, Ray Charles, Patti LaBelle, Pauline Murray, In Excess, Sonic Youth, The Go-Betweens, The Mission, and Queen. It's a mere week before the Smiths release their new LP, The Queen is Dead, but the big Smiths news this week is that bassist Andy Rourke has fucked off out of it. His replacement is Craig Gannon, one-time member of Aztec Camera and well-known session musician, says the NME, promising that on the 20th of May, the Smiths will play the whistle test live, featuring their new lineup and songs from the new LP. Shame they couldn't have got rid of the frontman, really, but never mind. Finally, under the headline, Wash These Scum Off The Streets, we're informed that a new police training manual issued by California Union City Police Department has punk rock and heavy metal firmly in its sights. The manual, entitled Punk Rock and Heavy Metal, The Problem, One Solution, lists Van Halen, Rush, Husker Du, Ozzy Osbourne and Wasp as deserving of censorship, claiming that such bands are likely to be used as a form of rebellion against the government. The manual which those friendly neighbourhood Union City cops recommend should be given to any parent having problems with their rock and rolling offspring, also cites publications as Cream and Hit Parader as the mind camp of the new generation, <laughs> likening rock activity to that of Adolf Hitler's brown shirts. No wonder Debbie Harry had those Union City blues, quips Fred Della. <laughs> Imagine being in an American heavy metal band and not being listed in that manual. You'd be oh, yeah, well you'd be fucked off. <laughs> oh, man, the kids only want to rock. Wasp. Fucking hell. So he's been trying to play me Wasp of late. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not gone well. <laughs>
In the interview section, well, Billy Bragg has just returned from a tour of East Germany organised by the youth section of the local Communist Party and he's keen to tell Danny Kelly all about it. It turns out the tour was instigated after Bragg was approached in the toilets at a folk club in Edinburgh and asked to play East Berlin's 16th Political Songs Festival. Oh, that old fucking chestnut. (laughs) I followed a very Western-looking gent accompanying five or six singers on the piano, he reveals. They did this real bouncy-flouncy number, like Bugs Fizz or Brotherhood of Man, and I was thinking, aye, aye, the commie vision song contest but later i heard their song translated and the verses were entirely composed of the text of mikhail gorbachev's speech promising to rid the world of nuclear weapons by the year 2000 fantastic yeah less embarrassing probably than sexuality by billy bragg which yes. is a song i still can't listen to meanwhile paisley park acolyte sheila Ree is in town to promote a love bazaar which results in a sit down with gavin martin she immediately gets all giggly when asked if the song about having it off in a limo and on a bed of flowers is autobiographical and stresses that she's never had it off with Prince and they've only been friends. The rest of the interview shuts down quickly, especially when Martin asks her, what do you dislike most about America? Sheila gives me an incredulous, quavering look. Dislike about America? That's why I said... Nothing. Oh, come on. No, I like America. There must be something. No, I like everything. People, some of them must annoy you, says Martin. No, I like everyone. Blissfully bland in the all-American state of grace is celebrity. Sheila's E may be for excitement, electric and effervescent, but look a little further and you'll find E is for empty-headed too, writes Martin. Oh, a bit harsh. Yeah, a bit harsh. I mean, that really sounds like she's kind of like, there's a lot of things there and she feels like she can't say any of them. Not even, like, if if she starts talking about how uh, the hot dogs are bad, then she'll just end up on a full-on rant about how extraordinarily racist it is. And she just, she's not going to do that to Gavin Martin of the Enemy at this time. So, you know, no. and her brain just shorts out. I don't know, I'm just speculating. Maybe she maybe she did just like everything about America. And, st- you know, it's like, who the fuck are you? You limey bastard. Yeah, yeah. David Quantic has an equally confrontational chat with Susie Sue and Steve Severin in a West End tea room about the new Banshees album, Tinderbox. Susie is looking at me very politely. Severin is looking at a teapot. I've just told them that I think Tinderbox is an album whose only distinguishing mock is that it sounds like Susie and the Banshees and it has no thrill or excitement to it. That kind of argument doesn't really penetrate because it's been said of every album since The Scream, says Susie, before Quantic accuses the band of being afraid to take risks. Severin raises his eyes above teapot level. It's just basically an album of really strong songs, and that's all we wanted to do, as opposed to being the banshees zooming off in one direction or another. It was all done to be one complete overall album. Okay, so you've made a nice complete album, a nice complete staid, unadventurous album that's incredibly same, says Quantum. <laughs> People say you're all dried up. 
Severin gives me one of the most extraordinary looks I will ever see. Suzette just smiles at me pityingly. Mm. There's a lot of spikiness, isn't there? That's very spiky. Have you ever done an interview where you, you basically started it by saying, well, you're shit, aren't you? What the fuck? Your latest album's fucking cat shit, mate. As an opening interview, Gambit, I mean, I don't have the bravery to do that kind of thing. No. It's kind of revealing, in a sense, that the story with these bands has gone. Yeah. They've come up, and now they're just other bands, you know, just bringing albums out, just like every other mm. band. And it's kind of, there's, there's nothing to snag. So, yeah, a lot of these interviews seem to be getting a bit spiky. Mm. Uh, I mean, I would just have, have died I would have just yeah. like, like, well, yeah. Sarah, go in there. And I mean, no one, to, to be fair, no one ever told me to like go in there and, and you know, say, uh, yeah, what have you got to say for yourself? This album ain't all that, is it really? I mean, what, what do you think you're doing? Are you pop stars or what? <laughs> and I, I could not have done that. I would have just gone, I'm going to lie here on the floor quietly and die next to the bin. I just, no, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have done it. I think there's, there's a way to do that and to, to get a response. But I don't know what response Dave Quantic would have expected here, really. I can't tell whether it's balls or just arrogance. I mean, I just would not be able to do that at all. And, mm. and I've been given advice by other journalists, you know, that if, if somebody, say, dries up during an interview or they're not really giving you much you know get spiky get confrontational start calling mm. them shit <laughs> but honestly if an interview's going badly for me that's it I'll just call it a day I'll, mm. I'll lie and I'll say yeah I've got enough cheers would you even have been able to do that by the time you bowled along in the 90s oh I think I would have and I think there were people who did um, when, I, when, when I started but I could never do that I mean because interviews just always terrified me anyway I always yeah. just wanted them to be a conversation that went okay mm. so so this idea of starting an interview you know sitting down with a band and the new album saying your album shit I mean I just don't have the cojones yeah. to do that I don't believe that you know you have to go in and kiss everyone's ass. No. I ended up um, one, one of the best features I ever did ended up being with the Cardigans because they were just knackered and just like oh, mm. you know and they've been going for, for long enough that that they were just kind of tired in that very particular way, which I saw encapsulate a bit, just like the ennui of the um, yeah. the long term band, I suppose, which is an experience that is that is really common. Just like, yeah, what what are we? They're tired of talking about themselves. Mm. That was the reason why I, I didn't like doing interviews a lot of the time, is because I was like poking people to go, go on, get be enthusiastic, like trying to get people to be enthusiastic when they're just really tired mm. and they've yeah. said all this stuff before. And, you know, it's like, oh, so it, it can be so joyless. I mean, I don't want to be ungrateful. I met some great people, but not under the best circumstances. Mm. Mm. You know. And for fuck's sake, they put a new album out. They haven't fucking shut down libraries or something. They're not politicians. <laughs> <laughs> the confrontational interview is, uh, I don't know, It kind of sometimes it works. If you're Stephen Wells, then it's fucking great. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. other people, it's just like, oh, don't goad them, mate. Just, I don't know, yeah. take them to Legoland or something. Oh, fucking <laughs> Don't fucking say that out. Oh. But no, I mean, the thing is with confrontational interviews like this, I, I, th- I agree completely. Swells was amazing at them. But with things like this, bands are just going to go into that default mode of defending themselves. And they're going to say the same stuff, really. Whereas perhaps suggesting in an interview in a kind of vaguely positive question Mm. that, oh, you know, you're running out of ideas. I mean, there's ways of doing it without, you know, pointing fingers, if you like. And I think you can let bands hang themselves a little bit more than you having to sort of swing the noose. When I used to advise people about giving interviews and stuff, I'd always say, well, yeah, it's all right to say, well, what's the point of this mm. why would anyone be interested in this and they'd say you can't say that it'll offend them and say no 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 you're giving them a full toss so they can just whack out of the fucking cricket ground mm. Mm. it's just a good way of getting people to say this is what i believe in and this is what i've done yeah but 
sometimes it doesn't work. I just, Susie's not no. going to respond to that, is she? No. I mean, ultimately, you're absolutely right. The most important question, really, to ask anyone that you're interviewing is, why are you doing this? Yeah. There's ways of getting to that. I mean, starting off an interview with your new album, Shite, yeah, that's not really going to go anywhere. <laughs> no, it's not. It's <laughs> <laughs> Simon Witter links up with George Clinton about his new LP, R&B Skeletons in the Closet, and how committed he is to remaining a creative nuisance, while revealing that he's been working with Sly Stone, Prince and Vanessa Williams, and ensuring that the covers of new P funk releases will give you bathroom reading for the next month but i may have to draw something new what with all this reagan gaddafi bullshit <laughs> in a tedious bieber cop feature cover stars test department tell neil's current editor mm, that their new ministry of power show slash happening is an attack on the complete mediocrity we see around us maybe 50 years from now people will look back on this time and all they'll see is an endless repetition of the same programme, the same bleach musicians playing the same instruments and following the same patterns. Oh, nearly 35 years. He's kind of right, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's odd that Test Department are on the cover, to be honest with you. This isn't the yeah. liar for the enemy. Mm. This is the sort of thing that Melody Maker would absolutely start doing in about 87, just putting weird bands on the cover. Mm. But it's odd for enemy to do this. And in the thrill section, there's a small interview with Jackson Brown, who feels the need to tell the enemy about his current political inclinations. Brown tells John McCready that his appetite for endless introspection has diminished somewhat and snarls fuck it u.s policy in central america is fundamentally dishonorable reagan is making it all up the cia are tapping my phone and they're the richest terrorist organization in the world Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Singles reviews. Well, in the chair this week is reggae correspondent Penny Real. So naturally she commences by sifting through the slew of Jamaican releases that are cashing in on Supercat's pioneering boops cut, which uses the highly popular techniques. <sighs> Rhythm. <laughs> Not getting into it, Sarah. You win. What? The, hang on. Am I? I, I was. I, I thought about this the other day, and it's like because I know I'm going to pronounce it either. But like, am I any whiter than you, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> Who's if you're going to rank the the chart music crew in order of whiteness? Like <laughs> <laughs> These include Sugar Minots's John Boops, Michael Prophet's No Call Me John Boops, Anthony Red Roses' Me No Want No Boops. King Kong's Don't Touch My Boops and Junie Ranks's Cry For Me Boops. The term boops apparently refers to the kind of man sweet on the ladies, she helpfully points out. Sadly, they missed out on boops upside your head. These boops were made for walking and boops, I did it again. <laughs> There's a cluster of singles released by women this week, so Real naturally lumps them all together under the heading Let's Talk It Over in the Ladies' Room. Another Day Comes by Kiki D is dismissed as an ugly, monotonous and cliche-ridden dirge with a nod in the direction of Eurythmics, performed with what Kiki D probably likes to think of as passion or a prolonged screech to you and me. 
Live to Tell by Madonna gets equally short shrift. The law of diminishing return sets in as the singer's thin, sulky voice fails to rescue a ponderous ballad from ignominy. And Bangles commit the cardinal error when the song goes on too long with if she knew what she wants. I fucking hate Live to Tell. Do you? Yeah. You mean you really hate Madonna, do. so like... When I was bunkered up in my bedroom, I used to listen to Laser 558, and Live to Tell was on all the fucking time, and it's... Ugh. It's very glum. Yes. It's a very glum song. Squeezer's still knocking about, and Real observes that their new single, King George Street, is like arriving in Greenwich on the number 54 bus on a rainy Saturday evening, having spent the previous couple of hours huddled along 3,000 other diehards inside Charlton Athletics capacious stadium at the Valley. A somewhat specific reference there. Billy Graham's Going to Heaven, the debut single by Proto House Martins The Locks, is Canterbury speed rap notable for the line Bring Your Money to QPR and the flip side Maggie Maggie Maggie, which borrows a Led Zeppelin chorus to preach the wholly admirable sentiment Maggie 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 at 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 <laughs> Your Wildest Dreams by the Moody Blues is vapid and silly. Tongue-tied by Kenny Charles similarly embraces vapidity sometime before it ends. It's Just a Matter of Time by Glenn Campbell lets cornball strings and production intrude to turn the whole thing into a piece of indigestible smolts. Lost Some Blues by Latentat is more of a whimper of distress than an actual song. An apocalyptic by Twinks is sing along a metal that might find some adherence at a biker cafe on the A127, but real doubts even this. Yeah, Twinks is a, a heavy metal band name that's not aged well, has it? <laughs> But I mean, it's telling, isn't it? Think about all these singles that Penny's writing about. Mm. If you looked at that singles page and somebody asked you, you know, what's going on in 86 then? I mean, this page is kind of like, yeah, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. It's just a load of sort of stuff with no centre to it, really. Um, there doesn't feel like there's any sort of prevailing thing happening. Yeah, and there's a lot of avoiding of more chart-friendly releases this week, I'll be bound. Mm, yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, Penny, Penny had a, a, a real sort of reggae focus. Mm. I mean, I used to do the same when I did the singles. I just used to fill it full of hip-hop. Yay. It was your, your one chance to have a say in an editorial direction, in a sense. Spray your mouth. <laughs> indeed, indeed. In the LP review section, the main review this week is given over to Tinderbox by Susie and the Banshees, and Kath Carroll is distinctly underwhelmed. The band themselves, apart from judging it brilliant, see it as a coming together for the new look Banshees as they break in new guitarist John Valentine Carruthers. This explains the overall impression of a group suspended in aspic. The tone of the album would suggest a group forging on in search of an inspirational oasis while surviving on unsatisfactory resources. When they get to the bottom, will they go back to the top? Let's hope so. Mm. The Art of Noise have put out their second LP, Invisible Silence, and is rewarded with a zany conceptual slagging from Nick Coleman. Shorn of Paul Morley's wiggly words, the art of noise are a slightly different proposition, writes Coleman. You see, I have made this amazing discovery. The art of noise's new LP only answers to the name Kevin. 
Call him Geraldine or Leopold or Glen Hoddle or Mr. Art of Noise LP and all you get is a sullen round silence. But call him Kevin and he is yours forever. He's pretty undemanding, Kevin. Take him to see Absolute Beginners and he sits there quite unmoved in his nice jacket. Ask him to show you his nipples and all you get is a round black stare. Kevin is the beast, the apocalypse, the collective unconsciousness. He is not a rock star. Although he would never admit it, his favourite TV programme is Tomorrow's World and he delights in the notion that in the 21st century, scientists say, all music will be constructed in this way. Really, Kevin is a boring, pretentious little git, but, and I'll tell you this for nothing, he does make my stereo sound bloody expensive. Mm. Cool, how we've moved on since this is a toe-tapper that will get the brain working. (laughs) (laughs) There are no new Kevins being made, you know. There's no new Kevins. No. Lots of new Joshes, but no new Kevins. Are we post-Kevin? We're fully in the post-Kevin era. No, definitely. Talking of bland non-pop star names, Danny Kelly has got hold of Slang Tang by Wayne Smith, which is finally out over here on Green Sleeves. Among his contemporaries and rivals, he must have been well to the rear of the queue for names. By comparison with Tenor Saw, Nitty Gritty and Coco T, Wayne Smith sounds like a cattle-browed Division 3 centre-forward. Pleasant enough, but too familiar to shock you a shock, too homogenous to sting you a sting. Slang Tang is very much a case of too little, too late. What Danny Kelly did didn't know then, but probably knows now because he's well into his reggae, that Wayne isn't even his real name. What's his real name? His real name is Ian Smith, which <laughs> oh no God. reggae artist is going to use, even in 1986. No, no. He, he might as well call himself Eugene Terra Blanche. Vic Goddard's debut solo LP, T-R-O-U-B-L-E, which he recorded two years ago with the jazz band Working Week, has finally been picked up and put out by Rough Trade, and the legend has trouble of his own in understanding why. It has about as much to do with the noisy guitars, immaculate out-of-tune vocals and harsh pop tones of Subway Sect as the new Style Council single has to do with In The City. (laughs) Matt Snow, while apparently singing the praises of Stop Pretending by LA girl band The Pandoras, still manages to call them These Broads, says the record farts and chews gum at one and the same time and signs off with the line Suck on that, Ziggy Ziggy Freudnik. Circuses and bread by Durati Column might be potentially damaging to the mental stability of tearful O and A level students who listen to this sort of stuff during their stress filled study breaks, according to Donald McRae. A new Liverpool band High Five have a debut LP called Down in the No Go, but Mick Sinclair doesn't reckon it or them. I doubt that the High Five really lack a sense of purpose, but there is no evidence of it here. They seem to take half an hour to say very little and make recording an LP sound like a dull chore rather than an adventure or a challenge, veiling virtually everything in lukewarm rhythm guitar dabs and generally uninspired playing. Oh, straight to the record shop we go, pop-crazed youngsters. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) 
Nice to see the legend in there, mm. my future editor yeah. and uh, teaching colleague, as it goes. Oh, really? Yeah, it's Jerry, isn't it? It's Jerry Farry, Everett Trip. Ah. He's the legend. That's where he started. Is this self-declared sub-decay? Well, yeah, I mean, he bought that single on Creation, didn't he, under that name, The yeah, Legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He occasionally cycles back to it amongst his many personas. <laughs> yeah, he was just up the road from me uh, on Sunday playing the Songs of the Fall on the piano at the Walthamstow Trades Hall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hear it went well. Yeah, my friend went. In the gig guide, well, David could have seen fine young cannibals at the Town and Country Club, Depeche Mode at Wembley Arena, James Brown at Wembley Arena, the Godfathers at the Marquee, Gino Washington and the Ram Jam Band at Brentford Red Lion, or then Jericho at the 100 Club. That ain't right. Then Jericho at the 100 Club. Fuck that. What do you mean? Fuck that because the 100 Club's too small. Well, no, because the <laughs> club, you just think, oh, punk and all that mm, kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Then Jericho, not allowed to go there. Just imagining David's face watching Gen- Then Jericho. Mm. Gen Jericho was Gen yeah. Jericho. <laughs> oh, there's, there's the tribute band, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Taylor could have treated himself to Jennifer Rush at Birmingham Odeon, Spaceman 3 at the Birmingham Mermaid, Big Audio Dynamite at Birmingham Portland, or trekked out to the lair of the Wolfroonians to see her shirts at Wolverhampton Cleveland Arms. <laughs> Neil could have seen Salem Foundations at Coventry Red House, FM at the General Wolf, the go-betweens at Kofpole, and fuck all else. Mm, city of culture. Sarah could have seen Big Country at Sheffield Town Hall or Pulp at Leeds Adelphi, but would probably be best off checking out Bingo Reg and the Screaming Genies, backed by Stuttering Jack and the Heart Attack, <laughs> down at Chesterfield Top Rank. My faves. Al could also have seen Big Country at Nottingham Concert Hall, the Redskins at Chivago's, Twisted Sister at Nottingham Concert Hall, the Blow Monkeys at Rock City, and wound up the week with Big Audio Dynamite also at Rock City. I can't remember seeing uh, the Redskins at Zhivago's. Oh, right. Yeah, Zhivago's was a right fucking Gary and Sharon place. Was it? Certainly <laughs> not the place that the Redskins would have been at. Mm. Used to be a venue. Little Richard played there in 1972. Blimey. Yeah, it's, it's now a Taco Bell. <laughs> and Simon could have seen the Temptations at Cardiff St. David's Hall, Attila the Stockbroker at Kevin Coed Rugby Club in Merthyr Tidville and wound up a thrilling week of pop intensity watching Shirley Bass's two-night residency at Cardiff St. David's Hall. In the letters page, well, Stephen Wells has drawn the short straw this week and the main topic of conversation is the piece about the Redskins having a lovely time in Moscow in a recent issue. But Ernst Vestergaard of Exeter is not impressed. It's blasé and flippant for the Redskins to say that they are aware and conscious of their philosophical weakness, but they seem to ignore this and blunder on. Exactly what form of corrupted Marxism are they peddling? I use the term corrupted Marxism as I believe that this is what the Redskins represent. Surely the reason the Redskins have to play gigs in the middle of nowhere is because they have become another band to be manipulated and exploited by the music industry. They have become the cliches that they so obviously despise. Apparently the Redskins have been on the verge of packing it in, yet they haven't. Why not? 
because they still enjoy preaching to the converted despite their awareness of their political confusion and negation. Is that why? Where were you in 1917, Christine? (laughs) Yeah, where was David Stubbs when the rainforests were burning as well? That still needs to be answered. DMP from Manchester joins the pylon when he writes, Can we take them seriously? I suspect not. From where this punter stands, behind the short hair and Diana Ross sing-song, lies nothing but regurgitated cliches and cast-off Weller and Bragg lyrics. Do music and politics mix? Yes, when done with a bit of imagination. Something the Redskins probably don't seem to think matters these days, but to your average punter, take it from me, it does. <laughs> oh, poor Redskins, man. Mm, you can you can sort of hear the, the immense rustling of a lot of black cardigans in this letters page. Mm, yes. <laughs> The other thing in the previous issue that got on readers' tits, a feature on the Federation of Conservative Students, is commented on by P. Ellis of Glasgow under the headline, Hooray Hitlers. (laughs) Pleasant reading, the piece on young Tories. What a joy to read the absolute shite coming from these posers. Nice to know that while the NUS and Labour clubs are trying to fight racism, these wankers are fighting other students. Any attempt that's made to restrict the working class should be fought every inch of the way, beginning with organisations like the FCS, whose views and racist ideas should be stomped out. Fred Titmus would be appalled. <laughs> After reading Annie Mahalter's FCS article in the April 5th issue of NME, I pondered this question. Why are there not so many musicians who are outwardly right-wing and or racist? Says CJ Cunningham from Manchester. I can tell you why. Because the roots of 90% of pop music originated from foreign styles. Not only Boe, he's not racist, but Screwdriver's Oi music are derivative forms of R&B. Stuff the FCS and their pseudo-anarchist crap because this is useless and only keeps the money and power in the hands who have always had it. Just waiting for Noel Gallagher. Yes. Speaking of Oi... In 1980-fucking-six, Tim from Red Action Under Five's Kilburn nips in to correct some prejudices about the genre. Every time I pick up a music paper, which isn't very often, I find little of interest to read. What I find more upsetting is the middle-class snobbery towards different types of music. I personally like and have been into Oi since the days of Sham, Menace and the Roots, before all the Oi, the bank balance stuff. Does that make me a Nazar? Fuck no. Sure, there are NF elements on the OI scene, but to pay them attention and ignore the rest of it is an insult to all the committed socialists on the scene. And by that, I mean raving commies and not national socialists. End air quotes. It's been left-wing punks, skins and herberts who have stood up to the front at gigs. Where are all you trendy lefties then? So what if the so-called godfather of Oi is a scab bastard? That's no reason to slug off Oi as a whole. There was Oi before Bushel and there will be Oi after him. 
During the miners' strike, Red Action organised a victory to the miners' tour, and it was predominantly punk and skin bands that played. Also, me and my mates have been involved with things like anti-fascist action. You don't have to be a student to be a socialist. To smear all oysters as Nazis is an insult, and just shows you up for the narrow-minded bastards you are. (laughs) The way that starts, you know, that that every time I pick up some music paper, which isn't very often, that's such a, I mean, that's a Twitter thing almost, isn't it? You know, here's how unoffended I am by this thing that you've written. Yeah, (laughs) TLDR. One of the recent topics of conversation in Gasbag, King Kurt and their alleged onstage animal abuse raises its ugly head once again. I would like to reply to the two concerned King Kirk groupies from Essex. You state Kirk do not and have never thrown live or dead animals about on stage. Well, frankly, that's bollocks, writes one of the Cheem and Sutton ex-Kirk crew. I myself saw Kurt at least a dozen times at the 100 Club when they were still a support band, and it was not uncommon for the odd rabbit corpse to suddenly appear in mid-air. <laughs> Ask the band about their early performances. Ask Rory about the dead cat he kept in his freezer. And where did the pig's head come from? <laughs> and finally, in more, you can't say that anymore news, John Crowley of South Arrow is furious with the enemy for printing something he doesn't agree with last week you printed a letter from an ulster unionist exclamation mark i know that you're trying to be anti-trender and printing a letter from an orange man is anti-trender because the ira have always been a very fashionable organization to support but printing correspondence from one of those reactionary swines is just ridiculous as well as boring publications such as yours should be pro ira yours with Margaret Thatcher and the Queen's death very much in mind. John Crowley of South Harrow. Blimey. No. 52 pages, 45p. I never knew there was so little decent fucking music in it. God, what a time to be a music journal, 1986. Poor bastards. <laughs> Thin pickings, isn't it? The enemy are firmly into their ignore the charts at all times uh, policy, and it's... Yes. It's not working, is it's it? It's not working, because they're just going to end up with Susie on the cover every three months, The Cure on the mm. cover every three months, and it's just they're just going to be completely sort of beholden to the, the cycle of the music industry, um, yeah. you know? Um, but it, it says a lot about 86, in fact, that this issue is so thin. Although that letter about King Kurt did remind me of Hans Moretti, the freaky magician on the Paul Daniels show used to chuck alligators right. about. So that was a nice memory. Live ones? Yeah, yeah. He got massive what, complaints. What, juggle about, them? Yeah, no, there was a, there, he hypnotised them. Right. And then he'd start sort of swinging them around. And there were massive complaints on points of view the following week. Can imagine. Um, because it was animal cruelty. He was a really disturbing magician, Hans Moretti. He used to do things that were just frankly not suitable for Paul Daniels' slot. <laughs> I remember he did a thing where he... Where he uh, me, me, me and my sister were watching it, and um, he came on, and he got a knife out and just started stabbing himself in his arm, right. and all this blood came flying out. Me and my sister were like, what the fuck? Um, this was like <laughs> 7.30 on a Saturday, you know? And I think he got complaints about that, but he kept on getting invited back. Maybe he hypnotised them. Well, exactly. Yeah, And no. started swinging them around. Probably kept being invited back to Paul Daniels' sex dungeon as well. <laughs> Yeah, he was part magician, kind of part at least a Crowley-type figure. He was a bit disturbing. Lovely. 
But yeah, 52 pages, enemy. I mean, I it's thin as fuck, isn't it? And there's not much in it. So what was on telly today? Well, BBC One kicks off at six in the morning with a 50-minute CFAX data blast. And then Frank Boff nips out of his sex dungeon to join <laughs> Debbie Greenwood for breakfast time. At 20 past nine, it's another CFAX data blast. Then play school. Then a 40-minute CFAX data blast. The afternoon news and regional news in your area. Pebble Mill at One offers sewing advice, a musical tribute to Brighton, and celebrates the last ever episode of Pop Black. Then it's Hokey Cokey with Carol Chell and Don Spencer, then racing from Cheltenham, and they close down for 12 minutes before roaring back with regional news in your area. Then Floella Benjamin climbs out of her dustbin and travels back in time to the era of knights and damsels in distress in Leon 5, followed by Laurel and Hardy getting involved with the American Civil War with Southern Hospitality. Johnny Briggs attempts to win the school rabbit for the holidays, hopefully not give it to King Kurt. (laughs) Ulysses 31's annoying kids accidentally travel 5,000 years back in time. Then it's John Craven's news round and Simon Groom manages to get his 1965 Jaguar done up into a racing car at Silverstone on our licence fee in Blue Peter. Robbie Vincent and Angrad Mayer force some nans to do some aerobics in the Keep Fit show Go For It, followed by the news at six, and they've just finished regional news in your area. BBC Two commences at 5 to 7 with some throbbing open university action and then closes down for an hour and 40 minutes before coming back with a five-hour CFAX mega blast. At 2pm, it's the British premiere of Le Fin du Jour, the 1939 French film about a retirement home for actors that's fallen into disrepair. Then it's show business, the 1944 Eddie Cantor musical about the Ziegfeld Follies, followed by a new summer air, then a repeat of the 40 minutes documentary Johnny Oddball, the follow-up to the 1975 documentary Minet about an 11-year-old serial arsonist who was incarcerated in an assessment centre. Then it's Young Musician of the Year, and they're currently showing Discovering Birds with Tony Soper. ITV opens up at a quarter past six with Good Morning Britain, with Claire Rayner having a good snuffle around the subject of underage sex. Then it's regional news in your area, followed by The Abominable Snowman, the 1957 Peter Cushing film about the titular Yeti. Then some cartoons. After a repeat of Fireball XL5, it's about Britain, Raggy Dolls, Puddle Lane and the Sullivans, followed by News at One and regional news in your area. After the drama series Hotel, Shaking Crossroads, it's Home Cookery Club, Daytime, University Challenge, even more regional news in your area, and Sons and Daughters, the show where some Australians realise that love is very strange, as it can come and go. (laughs) It can also happen when you're young or old, don't you know? Mm, So I hear. After a repeat of this morning's Raggy Dolls, it's James the Cat, Basil's Joke Machine, starring the Vulpine BBC refugee with the felt teeth, then Bellamy's Bugle, a repeat of Supergran, and Connections, the quiz show they used to bung on whenever Blockbusters was an holiday with Sue Robert. 
After the news at 5.45 and even more regional news in your area, Kath Fellows disgraces herself at the Hathaways in Crossroads and they've just started Emmerdale Farm, where Joe Sugden and Tubby Turner fight like rats in a bag for the top job at North Yorkshire Estates. Channel 4 has its usual doss in bed until 2.15 when they bring us the thrills and excitement from the House of Lords yesterday in their Lordship's house. Then it's two hours of racing from Newmarket, then Countdown, then it's This England, the 1941 propaganda film about an American tourist who visits the village of Cleveland and discovers how many times its residents told foreign invaders to fuck off. After that, it's the documentary's autobiography of a jeep and to the shores of Iwo Jima, and they've just started Channel 4 News. Anything jumping out there, me dears? Well, mostly I'm thinking of you stuck at home bunking off. Yeah. And this is what you've got, man. No wonder you were fucking depressed. I know. Fucking ramble, isn't it? Nothing really jumping out, but I do now have the theme from Sons and Daughters in my head, probably for the rest of the day. So, uh, thanks for that. (laughs) Well, my dears, I do believe that a table has been laid for the the feast of, um, of, fucking, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. You hate 86 so much you can't even talk about it. And we're going to attack it tomorrow (laughs) in the second part of this thrilling odyssey into an April 1986 episode of Top of the Pops. So we're going to leave it there. We'll come back tomorrow. Thank you, Neil Kulkarni. No worries. God bless you, Sarah B. God bless you, Al. My name's Al Needham, and I really need you to stay pop crazed. Sharp music.